Keep this no, going. Yeah. This is oh. great television, no, he right? He was just like the detective downtown. He says, keep him on the line so we can trace the call. We continue our conversation today with Chris Matthews, whose ascension from politics to media became one of the most talked about stories in America. The Washington Post Ben Bradley once said, Matthews writes about politics the way sports writers cover boxing. Well, it's time to climb back in the ring. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. We give you information, not a panic attack. We look what's going on. I mean, my God. This was it. My kids were gonna die. That time is gone forever. This is the biggest story in America. We weren't prepared for this. Don't you want to speak truth to power? Toughest thing I ever had to do. So, Chris, I thought I'd level the playing field a little bit for our second segment, the life and times of Chris Matthews and bringing my partner, Michael LaRosa, in, who's no stranger to you, having been a producer on Harbaugh for many years. And he promised he will not throw you anything but strikes, no curveballs, just fastballs. I want to start with after tip. How did you get the job as bureau chief for the San Francisco Examiner? I... uh put together a bunch of articles I'd written for uh, the New Republic and some other magazines. I sent them out to Larry Kramer, who was the executive editor of the uh, Examiner, had been the Metro editor in the Post, and then the executive editor of the Trenton paper. And I let it it go. I just let it go. And then my sister-in-law, Annie, was getting married out there in San Francisco, so I decided to go out there and and I was selling product. I was head of the uh, Government Research Corporation. I wanted to go out and meet some people, like at Apple and places like that. And and I picked out one one guy. Said, I'm going to have lunch with Larry Kramer. So we started. We were down at South of uh, Market in San Francisco. A lot of drank a lot of uh, wine, and <laughs> and he said, "Well, how would you like to write a column for me?" And I had completely forgotten I'd sent the pile of stuff. And he said, "Well, here's what. Uh, I'll be back at DC in a couple of weeks." Write a couple of columns, and I'll, I'll t- look at it. So I wrote a couple of columns. One of them was called uh, Doleful Wit about Bob Dole getting in trouble by always having a great line. And uh, <laughs> Because he was getting ready to run for president. Well, he just had an eye. He always had a great line, but he wouldn't let a, a human being get between him and a line. <laughs> and that, that caused him trouble. So I wrote two columns, and he said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you 200 bucks a week. Keep your job. And then about a month or two later, his Washington Bureau Chief guy quit. And he'd been running my comms all this time. And he said, why don't you take the giveaway this big money you're making? A lot of money, I can tell you, by even today's standards. A lot of money, expense account, everything. I had a nice office on Connecticut. He said, get rid of that job of yours, whatever it is, and uh, I'll give you a certain income, which is about a half what I was getting. And then you'll be on television. You'll be all over the place. And he said, so I went home to my Kathleen, and she's working at Channel 7 as and we had a steady income, and she said, go ahead and do it. She was the evening news. She was 5, 6, and 11. So J- WJLA, right? Yeah. So I quit my job, which I delighted in doing. Yeah. I got to be on Good Morning America. Yeah. And then I started to get an annual salary from CBS Morning News. It was just uh, amazing money they paid me. And I did that for a while, and it would start to click for a while. Wasn't Jimmy Breslin like encouraging you to be that columnist that led to all this? He was a friend of Tips. He'd written about the gang and it didn't shoot straight or whatever it was. When the good guys finally won was his book about Watergate, he offered to see me. And I showed him all my clips and everything. And he goes, uh, you got to be a columnist. And he went over to see a guy at New York Newsday and tried to get him to buy my column. 
This is Jimmy Breslin. Jimmy Breslin. And um, I love the column. I did it for 12 years, 15 years. I get 15 years. I'm getting a, I get a monthly check from the San Francisco paper. Yeah. So you started doing more TV by being a contributor. I, should, I probably should have stayed with a calm, but. <laughs> <laughs> Quit winners. Is that what they say? Things like McLaughlin and you're becoming I a, love John a household name with those. I people. love John McLaughlin. Clarence Page and Eleanor and Pat Buchanan. I was sort of on the second string, but I. I but you made it into Dave. You got cameo into the movie Dave. Well, because I knew the guy's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> because. It goes back to one of your rules of politics. It's who you know, right? Who well, you get to know. That leads me because I, I read his book and I kept it with me during my time in politics because I felt like it was so applicable to politicians or or candidates or can, even candidate spouses. But like Roger Ailes' book, You Are the Message. Yeah, that's him. It had so many great lessons in politics. He even gave speaking. credit to the line with uh, Mondale about Mondale. I won't use your age against you. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. He said it was Reagan's idea. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty smart to say, say <laughs> that. But you knew him, and he, he helped get you involved in television, right? Roger Ailes and I met because Joe McGinnis, who had written yeah. the great books ever, Song of the President. Song of the President. He was writing a book on Teddy. And so he called me up and agreed to meet me at the, um, the Grill in Beverly Hills. And we had dinner. I love that place. And we had dinner, and afterwards, he said, you know, I'm going to meet somebody for drinks afterwards. Why don't you join us? You're going to like this guy. And he, and he told me who it was. He said, Roger Ailes. I said, Roger Ailes is our enemy. Why would I want to meet him? <laughs> so we went over to the Four Seasons in that cocktail area there. On Dehaney. On Dehaney. <laughs> and uh, we chatted, and I really liked the guy. And we started to I said, I pitched an idea of him. I want to do a show one week on a Sunday night, maybe at 11. I mean, the most important things that happened that week. It might be a movie came out. It might be something else. It might be a sports event. But it will only be interesting. Mm -hmm. Only stuff you put into a time capsule. And it's for mm -hmm. people that don't like watching television. But they'd all watch this show. And it'd be a fast-talking guy, me, <laughs> running the show. <laughs> right. So uh, Roger was working like mad on that. He had a whole plan for it, a perspective drawn up. And then he got a job running um, CNBC. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I called him up after a couple weeks. I said, how about that job? <laughs> And Roger said, okay. Said, okay. So you got politics with Chris He Matthews. moved Russert out of the way because Russert wouldn't do five days. He said, I only want to do people to do five days. You know, Roger was not just a television phenom coming from the Mike Douglas show and all those incredible productions. He was a political media consultant. You were essentially a political consultant. He probably saw a lot in you that he saw in himself. Well, you know, Roger... Uh, I've heard this story. It's through the grapevine that uh, when he went, he wanted to hire Sean Hannity. Mm -hmm. And he, Sean had done some part-time substitute radio stuff. And he went out and climbed up on a roof because he was a roofer. Mm -hmm. He climbed up on the peak of the roof and said, are you the guy that done the radio shows? <laughs> Roger would go for talent. And he, and he was not like these. He's not some time server. He knew what he, knew what he was doing. And he would find people. It reminds me when I read that he worked for Mike Douglas' show and Nixon was coming was on. He 28. Yeah. yeah. 28 years old. EP, Nixon was coming on. And he, and he it's said too it, bad people have to use some gimmick like television. television. He says yeah. it's not a gimmick. And if you think that, you're going to lose. I feel like that is completely applicable today, still. Of all the people in Congress, 
they're 435. Yeah. There are a lot of people that don't like doing television, yes. and they, they'd much rather do, sign a newsletter. Mm-hmm. They don't like it because they're not that good at it. Mondale was not that good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bunch of people over the years who just aren't that good at it. But Biden used to be on cable all the time. He used to do your show in the Senate. Like He was on TV and very accessible all the time. It just seems like he's not as accessible as he used to be. And I think even though he's aged and he's older, I still think he is better when he is unscripted than coached and rehearsed. I don't know. Maybe if they have people feel they get a harder hit when he does make a mistake, because that seems to be the case. They don't want to be exposed out there because they, they, every day they have a mistake. I did have a philosophy with, with Tip O'Neill, and I was working with him for six years, and I decided he's a likable guy. If he gets a lot of exposure, people very quickly will distill out anything they don't like, and they're going to like him. And in the end, it's going to be a matter of who you're for. Yeah. It's the same reason George W. De- defeated Al Gore. They looked at both of them and they said, I trust George yes. W. It was like that in every poll in the Senate races in 2022. No matter how close the races mm-hmm. were, all of the Senate races, the favorability and likability numbers for the Democrats were were just five points plus higher than every Republican There were predictors candidate. of fate. Yeah. Okay, let me give you a speech. We, we did Go this on the show when you were there. Yeah. John Kerry walks into a dinette where a lot of the women have jobs that aren't jobs that they, they really like. They put up with them. And so for eight hours a day, they're putting up with some boss they don't like and, or a job they don't like. And, but at lunchtime, they get 45 minutes to a, a paperback book they've been reading, and they're on page 200 or something. They want to finish it. And this young woman was sitting in a dinette in a banquet, and in comes John Kerry with the cameras. And he read over her his five-point plan <laughs> for the economy. He just read it over her. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. Right. Then I watched another dinette scene. We put this on television, both of them. And then we showed that George W., who's not a lettered man, he doesn't know things that we don't know. But he walked into the dinette and he saw a family, a young family, husband and wife, two daughters, and a young boy. And the first thing he says, hey, dude, what's it like having all the girls around you? You feel feel a lot outnumbered here? I said, how did he know how to talk like that? Nobody taught him. That's how you talk to people. You know, as I said on Morning Joe the other day, I said, most people, when they meet a stranger, they start talking about their kids because there's one way they can get out of politics and they can talk about something else as far away from politics as you can be. So obviously, Michael's with you for many years on Harbaugh, so many memories. The one I have was that exchange, we'll call it an exchange, between you and Zell Miller. Oh, you got it? Get out of my face. If you're going to ask me a question, step back and let me answer. Certainly, Zell Miller at the 2004 Republican Convention here in New York uh, saying he wished he could have a duel with me. I, I took that seriously, by the way. I told our producers, calm down, don't say anything, don't revel too much in this because this guy may mean it. I wish we lived in the day where you could challenge a person to a duel. Now, that would be pretty good. And uh, I've subsequently written a letter to... Uh, Senator Miller, who I do respect, certainly for his contribution to the country, but it was quite a moment. I did worry about us being on the Hudson the next day, along the bluffs there, with two Confederate dueling pistols being presented to me to choose from, and he was going to take me down in the the field of honor. So Zell Miller was the U.S. Senator from Georgia. I I know him pretty well because at one point, my dad and I represented Johnny Isaacson. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a race against Zell Miller. We lost that race to Zell Miller before Zell flipped over the side of the fence. But that was not just an engagement. That was almost pugilistic. Can you 
Take us back. Well, he had he had uh, got had something on his mind coming on, mm-hmm. and he was going to get even with me. And he he had, he was feisty, uh, pugilistic, and I just thought I was going to get a guy on. He was making comment that I used. He said something like, "You know, the media aren't out there defending the First Amendment; the military are." Like, we owe something to the military. Like, individually, we owe them our rights. No, that's not the way I read it. We have our rights, God-given, and you protect them. But that's—it's not like you're in charge of me. You're not my boss. And I questioned him on that, and he went ballistic. I had Rick Kaplan, the president of my network, in my ear the whole time. Thinking, keep this going. This is great television, right? He was just like the the detective down tennis. Keep him on the line so we can trace the call. Uh, He was just like tracing the call. (laughs) And and I'm saying, well, come on over here. We'd like to have you over here. And and I kept playing with him. And, you know, I I eventually, after that's over with, I, I, I wrote him a letter right before he died a couple of years ago. And I wrote him a letter and I said, you know, that wasn't really a great night for either one of us. And uh, I wish we hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. And he wrote me back the most wonderful letter in the world. Oh. Just a wonderful letter about how it takes a big man to talk. And uh, I just thought he was, he was a military veteran. I thought he deserved better than that. I'd always thought that the reason for his anger at the, the Democratic elite, I guess I'm one of them, they had high-hatted him when he came up north, that they were all the big elite I, I, Ivy Leaguers. And he said, the hell with them and the hell with me. I mean, that's what I put up with Carry from Yale Law and everything. I mean, yeah, but all these guys, he said, bunch of big shots. Uh, like, I don't, I don't think they, they, he, they, Teddy Kennedy even liked him. I don't think anything were, people were nice to him. There were a lot of viral moments over the years on Hardball that people remember a couple before I got there, the Michelle Bachman interview, 2008. What did I do wrong there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the one where, right. where she says she wanted to yeah. investigate right. the feelings of people in Congress, whether they were anti-American or or pro-American. Yeah. That was a big one. And then when I was there, there were a bunch. And um, the one fine thing from my time, I think I was there seven years, and we talked, we did a lot. Today on cable, they ask every member of Congress, are you an election denier? Well, you were very big on making sure every Republican who came on the show, you asked, are you a birther? I thought Trump had an angle there. Why would he do it? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of... Uh, this is before Trump ran for president. I, I, I get the feeling that he had a lot of people in business he did business with. Mm-hmm. He just didn't like, didn't like Obama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of his race, obviously, mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. And I get the feeling that he's playing his card for them. And they're going to... All those guys in the back room with lots of money... Yeah, call this guy sort of a third world, or he's not really one of us. They they liked it. Mm-hmm. Why would he keep doing it? Yeah. And uh, after a while, people began to think, hey, maybe he's got something, and maybe yeah. there's something here. And and I know the guys around him, like Axelrod, didn't like it as a question mark about whether you're an American or not. You want that to be a question mark? Is this guy American? Well, I thought it was a silly issue, but I underestimated the power. I think you're young, Michael. Yeah. Among people older than me. There, there are people in this country who have, to have race attitudes. Yeah, you don't believe. Yeah, and um, I think you're right. And I, I saw, I saw Jay Carney on a panel just last year, and he said the biggest mistake of his time in the White House as press secretary was the decision he and Obama made together. And then he said, President Obama and I both regret this that we did not take the birther issue seriously, that we laughed it off, that we just thought a third party arbiter like the media would like take care of it for us. The cavalry never came and it just kept going. And then of course at the press dinner, he ended up humiliating Donald Trump. No one is happier, no one is prouder 
to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? <laughs> what really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? Say what you will about uh, Mr. Trump. He certainly would bring some change to the White House. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, That's when they got Trump to run. Probably. Well, right, and and Carney said like he feels that they are like not responding to that, not taking it seriously, led to a lot of what we're seeing. Which, today. which takes us back to a rule of hardball. That, I was going right back to your book. I was looking for the rule. Don't let any shot like that go unanswered. Yeah. So look at the media today, where it seems it's becoming more and more decentralized, more distrust, public distrust than ever. Yeah. I know this is not something you like. You probably like to do. But well, I don't like attacking other baseball I, exactly. players. Exactly. If you could give ex constructive advice to especially young men and women who would like to maybe go into journalism and media. You can always go for the heat and talk about exciting subjects, but you've got to call a score. Three to two, five to three. And the game is as a score. There's something going on. And there's such a thing as a smart move and a weak move. And, and if you don't, you got to try, call them out. I think it's very important to be able to not just be able to say what the truth is, but to say the politics are true, to try to speak truthfully about politics. But it's hard because if you're on one side of the argument, which I am with mm -hmm. Biden, uh, you don't want to say something that hurts him. I thread that needle a lot. I mean, why, occasionally you have to. Right. How do you say a poll is good when it's clearly really bad, but then they get mad at you for saying the president's well, the not pulling is, uh, <laughs> The polling on this race is going to be nerve-rattling from now to the end. And I don't mm -hmm. know if anybody's going to break away. Trump will have so many legal problems, he can't break away with 20 points lead. It's unfathomable. We're more than a year out. But we may have a Kennedy in the race. We may have no labels weighing in on the race, perhaps with another flavor. We have something we haven't seen before, Chris. The former president, Donald Trump, is going down parallel paths. He's got his campaign and he's got his courtroom experiences and they're rushing downfield. We've never seen this before. We don't know what it will be like to see uh, President Trump at the defense table. Right. And even if it's just the opening shots on camera and then him coming out afterwards, admonishing the whole court system. But it is an extraordinary situation that a president, a nominee, former president, has been able to identify himself with opposition to all prosecutors, all witnesses. He doesn't like witnesses. He doesn't like judges. He's come out as the total anti-government candidate. Totally. This is not an analogy to 80 with Reagan saying to Carter, you know, and to the American public, are you better off today? Because it was a little bit more cut and dried then. With the former president, it is not. It's more complex, more complicated, more nuanced. But the same idea, Chris, that we're in a cycle which looks like a change cycle, take on the system cycle, take on the establishment cycle, favors that kind of candidate, doesn't it? I think people are unhappy. And it's not even clear there's a reason for it. They do care about government waste, they particularly seem to be caring more and more about Ukraine. Uh, they're pro-Israeli by instinct, but that's not looking very popular today because of the demonstrations. I was just in Italy, and I got to tell you, the demonstrations are everywhere in the world, and they're not just on our campuses. 
Uh, there are a lot more Arabs than there are Jewish people. There just are. And they're going to, and they're out there rallying and they don't change their mind about things. <laughs> this issue is not fickle. Right. You know where you stand and you fight for it. Who would have thought that this horrendous October 7th thing would lead to a favorable condition for the Arab people generally? Who would have predicted it? I'd say, what a horrible way to, to get people on your side. And yet, I almost can see President uh, Biden really working the two-state solution for the first time he's ever done it. I mean, just tell BB we're going to have to do it. The next conversation will be, maybe you have to do it. And Bibi doesn't want to do it because he'll lose his coalition. I have some friends in the uh, Michigan delegation, and um, they're having some real problems back home. It could be a big problem for the president because while that constituency doesn't want to vote for Trump, they won't take it off the table. They're that mad. How do you know what a Hamas person looks like? I mean, <laughs> they're going door to door killing people. How do they know who they shoot? They don't. That's the problem. Shoot. That's why this is not an easy operation, and everyone knows it. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining Michael it's and I. Um, yeah. Great you know, producer. <laughs> great producer, great co-host. Uh -huh. Thank you very much also for, frankly, for having the courage to kind of put it out there. They say, speak truth to power and, and expect it in return. You've done that in your life, not just your career on hardball. You've done that. You've taken risk. You've taken leaps of faith, starting on that Suzuki 120 back in Swaziland, right? <laughs> I knew you had a Philadelphia accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fair to say it's kind of worked out well. Um, America is very, very fortunate to have you. Thanks for saying. Remember to subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss another episode of the show with that trademark opener from Washington, D.C. It's 13th and Park.